You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Age of Responsibility, CSR 2.0 and the New DNA of Business. We are the champions. So what do Taddy Bletcher, Anurag Gupta, Wang Chan Fu, Jeff Immelt and all the other social entrepreneurs have in common? Is this a special breed of human being? Are social entrepreneurs born or can they be made? In the academic literature, there is an interesting thread of research centered around the idea of champions in organizations, especially environmental champions. The idea draws on prior conceptions of the human resources champion in the 1970s and 1980s, before HR became institutionalized. Academics define environmental champions as people who can express attractively a personal vision about environmental protection that is in tune with both the industry's needs and wider public concern, and who convince and enable organization members to turn environmental issues into successful corporate programs and innovations. Environmental champions have been shown to be imbued with a combination of characteristics, including being a catalyst, champion, sponsor, facilitator and demonstrator. Their skills include the ability to identify, package and sell environmental issues within their organizations. Their effectiveness in engaging others rests heavily on expertise, top management support and a strong appreciation for the problems that every business unit or operations manager focuses on. Research on champions is not confined purely to the environmental dimensions of sustainability. Others have written about socially responsible change agents, as well as managers' individual discretion as a component of corporate social performance. British academic Christine Hemingway, for example, finds that CSR can be the result of championing by a few managers based on their personal values and beliefs, despite the personal and professional risks this may entail. Individual managers are also often mediators in corporate philanthropy and stakeholder influence. Hence, the notion of CSR champions has emerged as an important concept, which I will return to in the final chapter on individual change agents. Bill Drayton, who has been involved in selecting and tracking the progress of the 2,700 Ashoka Fellows, believes social entrepreneurs focus every day on the how-to questions. How are they going to get from here to their ultimate goal? How are they going to deal with this opportunity or that barrier? How are the pieces going to fit together? They are engineers, not poets. The entrepreneur's job is not to take an idea and then implement it. That's what franchisees do. The entrepreneur is building something that is entirely new. By constantly creating and testing and recreating and then testing and then recreating again. There are other characteristics as well. According to Drayton, the true social entrepreneur has almost a magical ability to move people, a power rooted in exceptional ethical fiber. He or she is always asking people to do things that are unreasonable, and people do them. The entrepreneur has an inner confidence that most people sense but do not understand. While others think entrepreneurs are taking risks, entrepreneurs don't see it that way because they have thought through things extremely well. They also believe in their ability to continuously adapt the idea as they drive forward 
a goal that they know is a huge win for everyone, and ultimately to reach that goal. They know, in other words, that they have got the gift that brings the greatest happiness to the world, the gift of being able to give at the highest level. Once one grasps who the true social entrepreneur is, one would have to be crazed to bet against him or her ultimately changing the world at large scale. Mapping the Innovation Territory Examples of social entrepreneurs like Taddy Bletcher of Cedar and many others suggest that sustainability and responsibility innovation is alive and well, and if anything, growing rapidly. Consider what Danone has done with food fortification. Working with Muhammad Yunus's Grameen Group in Bangladesh, the company set out to put enough vitamin A, iron, zinc and iodine into a 60-gram or 80-gram cup of yogurt to meet 30% of a child's daily needs. That proportion was beyond anything Danone had ever attempted. It took a year and dozens of tries to figure out how to do it without the nutrients reacting with one another and souring the yogurt. The question remains, is innovation a random and unpredictable phenomenon, or is there some underlying rationale or theory that we can use to better understand and advance social innovation? In 2007, a joint Nordic project was launched to focus on CSR as a key innovation driver. The ambition was to develop a systematic approach to CSR-driven innovation to make SMEs break new ground on, for example, low-income markets or strengthening competitiveness by linking innovative solutions to key social or environmental problems. Inspired by the concept, social entrepreneurship is now being supported in Denmark by the government-funded Centre for Social Economy. In 2008, I did a research project with my colleagues at Cambridge University on sustainability innovation. In our attempt to map the territory, we created a model that looked at the enablers, processes and agents of sustainability innovation. There were a number of interesting findings. First, of the four enablers of innovation that we identified, government, finance, technology and culture, most people are focused either on finance or technology. For example, in the sustainability survey of over 100 social entrepreneurs, 72% cited access to finance as their primary challenge, and much of the report is dedicated to understanding this issue. Furthermore, many typical cases held up as innovation success stories, whether they be GE's Eco-Imagination Programme or Vodafone's M-Pesa service, are almost inevitably technology solutions. The corollary of this finding is that the role of government and culture is being neglected. Government, by setting clear long-term policy targets on social and environmental issues like biodiversity, climate change or access to health and sanitation, can create an enabling environment that allows business to innovate. Likewise, fostering a corporate and national culture of innovation, of opportunity orientation rather than risk obsession, is a necessary precondition for innovation. In the area of processes, of which we identified three, individual actions, management systems and tailored approaches, most of the focus has been on individual actions. This mirrored our findings for agents, where individuals were favoured over companies and non-business agents. Hence the notion of a sustainability champion or a social entrepreneur 
trains our hopes on the creative, business-savvy individual. This overlooks the important role of innovation within large companies, what the second in the sustainability series of reports calls intrapreneurship, as well as the potential for NGOs like Water and Sanitation for the Urban Poor, WASAP, to be part of the innovative solution. Volans Ventures has a different take on the process, which they see happening in five stages. The first stage is Eureka, in which the opportunity is revealed via the growing dysfunction of the existing order. Secondly, there's experimentation, a period of trial and error for innovators. Third, there's enterprise, during which investors and managers build new business models, creating new forms of value. Fourth, there's the ecosystem, when critical mass and partnerships create new markets and institutional arrangements. And finally, there's economy, when the economic system itself flips to a more sustainable state, supported by cultural change. Another interesting finding from my Cambridge research was that most cited cases seem to be innovation processes specifically targeting sustainability issues, rather than effort at embedding sustainability principles in core innovation processes. This is a fundamental distinction because it means that most R&D going on in companies, and hence most innovation, is not systematically building in social and environmental criteria. As a result, much like CSR more generally, innovation is a peripheral project or product-specific activity, which is exactly what is preventing scalable solutions from emerging in the mainstream economy. Until CSR is built into every organizational process, and especially into strategic functions like R&D or new product development, we will always be playing on the fringes of the age of responsibility. The Google Morph. I want to end this chapter with one more example, Google, because it tells us so much about the role of creativity in creating the age of responsibility. There was a time when we all believed that Google was a search engine company, but that was before the Google Morph, that phenomenon that Google has perfected of not only changing its spots, but almost magically shape-shifting before our eyes into a completely different creature. Understanding how and why Google manages to do this leads to some great insights. It all begins with the leadership, or in this case, two audacious Stanford PhD students, who decided in 1996 that if they made a copy of the internet and applied a complicated set of esoteric mathematical algorithms, they could make a search experience that was far superior to those offered by the highly respected, heavily funded and well-entrenched Yahoo and Microsoft Explorer search engines. From this we can gather that Google founders Larry Page and Sergey Brin are both highly ambitious and creative. But what happened next? They quickly became the most popular search engine and once they figured out a clever pay-per-click-based advertising revenue model that worked, note that this came after figuring out the superior product, then the money started to pour in. By the end of 2009, they were a $23 billion company. That 13-year growth story is remarkable in and of itself, but far more interesting for us is how Google has used its success in search and its gargantuan wealth to pursue much larger missions, to organize the world's information and to make it universally accessible and useful. 
In practice, we see this manifesting in innovations that have changed and continue to shape all our lives. Google Maps, Google Earth, Google Finance, Google Docs, Google Books, Google Scholar, Google Images, Google Translate, Google Alerts, and so the list goes on and on. One of the latest is Google Health, which is in the beta testing phase and allows you to organize your health information all in one place. It gathers medical records from doctors, hospitals and pharmacies and then allows you to share the information securely with a family member, doctors or caregivers. To get an idea of the scale of Google's ambition and creativity, let's look briefly at two examples. In 2002, Google was grappling with the question, how long would it take to digitally scan every book in the world? Well, no one knows. As part of this fact-finding mission, Page reached out to the University of Michigan, his alma mater, and a pioneer in library digitization. When he learned that the estimate for scanning the university library's 7 million volumes was 1,000 years, he told university president Mary Sue Coleman that Google could help make it happen in six. After experimenting with various scanning technologies, Google announced in 2004 that its print library project, in partnership with the New York Public Library and the universities of Harvard, Michigan, Oxford and Stanford, would digitize 15 million volumes. Then in 2007, just when we'd got used to the idea that Google was not only about search, but also about making the world's knowledge archive freely available, it Google morphed again. Through its Google.org fund, which it established with $1 billion in 2004, it announced a new strategic goal of RE less than C, or renewable energy less than carbon. Translated, the goal is to produce one gigawatt of renewable energy capacity that is cheaper than coal. One gigawatt of power can power a city the size of San Francisco. We are optimistic that this can be done in years, not decades, said Page. If we meet this goal and large-scale renewable deployments are cheaper than coal, the world will have the option to meet a substantial portion of electricity needs from renewable sources and significantly reduce carbon emissions. We expect this would be good for business as well. Google's proposal, called Clean Energy 2030, provides a potential path to weaning the U.S. off coal and oil for electricity generation by 2030, with some remaining use of natural gas as well as nuclear, as well as cutting oil used by cars by 44%. What is particularly relevant from the CSR 2.0 principle of creativity What is particularly relevant for the CSR 2.0 principle of creativity is how Google has managed to sustain such a culture of innovation. One crucial element is that all engineering staff are allowed to spend one day a week, in other words 20% of their time, on their own pet projects. People are given the time and space to be creative. And when you foster such an enabling environment, innovation flows naturally and copiously. At Google, an ideas mailing list is open to anyone at the organization who wants to post a proposal. Then Marissa Mayer has the task of making sure good ideas bubble to the surface and get the attention they need. What Mayer thinks will be essential for continued innovation is for Google to keep its sense of fearlessness. 
She says, I like to launch products early and often. That has become my mantra. Nobody remembers Madonna's sex book or the Apple Newton. Customers remember you for your average over time. That philosophy frees you from fear. So what's next? In 2009, Google Ventures was launched to invest in, among other areas, clean technology, biotechnology and healthcare, all critical focus points for the age of responsibility. So watch this Google morphing space.